Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Doc Stoll with New Books and Jazz. You'll enjoy my interview with Dave Gluck, percussionist, professor of studio composition, and co-author of Rhythms of the Game, The Link Between Musical and Athletic Performance. Dave's passion and enthusiasm for music, for sports, and his understanding of how rhythm underlies every activity of our lives is infectious. And it isn't often that an all-star baseball player that you've been watching perform your whole life walks into your office to take music lessons. But this is exactly what happened when New York Yankees center fielder all-star Bernie Williams, who also happened to be an outstanding jazz guitarist and musical performer, did one day. Dave and Bernie's conversations about music, sports, performance, and creativity coalesced into a collaboration with another colleague of Dave's, musician, composer, producer, author Bob Thompson. Together, Williams, Thompson, and Gluck have written The Rhythms of the Game, The Link Between Musical and Athletic Performance, published by Hal Leonard Corporation, 2011. You'll love Dave's energy, creative spirit, and storytelling in this interview. All right, Dave. Well, uh, I really enjoyed your book. I actually watched nine hours of baseball yesterday. Yeah, um, likewise. Uh, almost. <laughs> couldn't couldn't stop and I, I kind of tailored my uh, my work schedule around those nine hours but you booked <laughs> the game uh, with uh, with your co-authors Bernie Williams and uh, Bob Thompson right. really great I just just a great read and you touch on so many things I mean yeah biomechanics psychology uh, history uh, practice uh, just all kinds of things so I'm trying to think you know how do we start this thing and, and the one thing that came to mind is you know if if it if it it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Yeah. Um, you can yeah. apply that just about everything. So tell our listeners uh, a little bit about you, uh, where you grew up, and how you got interested in percussion, and then how you got involved in this amazing project with your your colleague Bob Thompson, and then the uh, Yankee center fielder Bernie Williams. Yeah. Well, you know, I um I grew up you know as a uh, as a percussionist, a drummer. Uh, I got my undergraduate degree at Ithaca College in central New York State and then University of North Texas. And then I did some master's work here at SUNY Purchase College where I'm currently um, a professor of studio composition. So even though my, my background as a performing musician is percussion, uh, hence rhythms of the game, um, you know, here at Purchase, I'm a, I'm a composer, uh, composition teacher, um, more specifically for, like, popular commercial uh, music. So, you know... So it was three years ago when both my my passions in life collided. When um, I'm going to you know make a long story short, but Bernie Williams basically shows up at my office door, and uh, and asks for you know music lessons. Um, I didn't teach him. He's a fantastic guitar player. I wasn't his guitar teacher, but on a weekly basis, one on one, we would talk about you know and work on arranging skills and composition. And it turned out that the uh, the opening cut. Uh, called Moving Forward was actually an assignment that I gave him. He was working on an African uh, rhythm, and we were talking about the essence of rhythm and how rhythm includes space and how you can fill in space. So it was a wonderful 
you know, experience how this this assignment turned into the uh, title track off of his new CD. And actually, we recorded a bunch of percussion tracks for here at Purchase. But uh, on that day when Bernie Williams came into my office, you know, both of my passions, like I said, in life collided. And um, and first of all, I, I, I thought I was, you know, um, experiencing some kind of sleep deprivation, a, a dream, because I didn't think it was real. Really, you know, he he comes in now, it's like, do I prefer you as Professor Gluck or can I use your first name? And I said, Bernie, this is a ludicrous question. If you literally knew how many times I screamed your name, jumping off the couch because of a game-winning home run or a game-saving catch. This is crazy. But, uh, Doc, you know, I was going to say, like, after each one of these music lessons, you know, I was just so intrigued with his life as a professional, you know, athlete. And I, I started this journal. I just call it the Baseball Music Journal because everything we talked about as a, as a performer, the preparation, the concentration, how to deal with mistakes, the pressure, yeah, it, it, the parallels just, you know, surface. It's like, wow, athletes and musicians, you know, we, we perform in different venues. It's the difference between a concert stage and an athletic field. But basically, we're performing in front of people, and it's how to prepare for those performances that I think we can learn from each other. And obviously, in sports, you have, you know, physical opponents, the opposite team. But as you're well aware, in music, we have sort of internal opponents, you know, and that's our self-doubt. And Bernie had wonderful things to say about how he deals with those internal, uh, you know, uh, opponents in his mind, the, the self-doubt and the, uh, the fear of failing. So we touch upon all these, all these things in the book. Yeah, I, actually, that it jogged my memory. I, I have a list of about 30 things I want to ask you about, and there's no way I can, I can do it, but one of the things I didn't jot down that you just jogged my memory on was the, the, the French uh, word for failure doesn't mean what we associate it with, oh, does it? No, you know, the, the we looked into that. I mean, when you really look back at the derivation, you know, the word, it just simply means an unexpected outcome, you know, um, something that wasn't expected to happen. It doesn't really have the negative connotation that it has right now. And I think a lot of successful, you know, people in the history of, our civilization, whether it's Albert Einstein or Abraham Lincoln or, or whomever, and not just musicians or athletes, but they'll say, like, you know, the, 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 the figures that the kids read about in their history books, they made the history books not because they avoided failures, because they made several mistakes and failed along the way, but it's what you take from that, you know. And if you think about the game of baseball, you know, a, a very successful um, hitter, offensively, that's around 300. Well, that means that 70% of the time he's failing. And I think it's that resilience um, in not letting that failure get at you, but understanding that it's, it's mandatory, you know, it's, it's unavoidable, and it's going to strengthen you. I think musicians can certainly benefit from that. Obviously, you're not going to go to a concert and, and, and listen to a violinist or a saxophonist play only 30% of the notes right. So there's not that parallel that way, but I, I think when we're on stage and we, we make a mistake as a musician, we have to understand that um, you can't step out of the batter's box. You just got to keep going, and you can't let it, you know, let it, let it affect uh, the next pitch. You know, not baseball pitch, but musical pitch. 
Yeah, and uh, I, I want to get back to some some other analogies you have there. But your yeah. your book has some wonderful examples of of musicians and music history and taking risk, and that risk is so much a part of uh, of being a successful athlete, but also being a, a successful musician, especially in jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we I had wonderful conversations with Bernie about this too, because you know. Um, First of all, I want to say um, we, uh, I talked to Susan Waldman, who is a radio announcer for the New York Yankees. She actually has a musical background. She actually grew up being a Boston Red Sox fan because she went to New England Conservatory. But um, anyway, she said like when, when she saw Bernie Williams come up to the plate and Pedro Martinez was pitching, she didn't even see it like a sporting event. It was more like halfway between a, a Latin American dance, a chess match, and maybe two two saxophonists or whatever trying to you know you know uh, compete against each other on the stage because it was it was a guessing game but it was also taking risks you know educated guesses and you know yeah it, it's all about risk because that forces you to to um, move outside your your comfort zone which is necessary for progress um, but Bernie and I talked about that and I think musicians have to take calculated risks I mean you're not just I'm not gonna you know, on stage in an improvisatory sort of environment. I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to jump off a diving board not knowing what I'm falling into. I mean, I'll jump off a diving board knowing that it's water down there and it's at a height that I've never jumped off of before. But, you know, it's got to be calculated. And you got to know the circumstances. You know, Bernie said that he would stretch a double into a triple um, and he would have to make that instant decision. But behind that instant decision was a lot of experience, you know, and pre-calculation. So, yeah, risk, risk taking for both musicians, especially improvisatory musicians and athletes, um, there's a direct parallel, and it's a must. You have to take risks, but they have to be calculated risks. Um, talk a little bit about, um, I want to go back, uh, Dave, a little bit, just about how you uh, structured the book with your two co-authors there, because it, it's a collaboration. Yeah. Um, I get the feeling you didn't all three sit down at one time and, and write, right? You're all well, writing. Well, actually, we did. We, we, we did we, yeah, we did, Doc. I mean, um, see, it was, I, I conceived of the book because it was, you know, I was Bernie's teacher, and after a couple semesters, it's like, Bernie, I think... We have an interesting book here that, you know, touches upon uh, these parallels. Um, so Bernie agreed. We did a couple of talks here at Purchase College um, in front of a live audience, and that went really well. And then he agreed to write a book. Um, my colleague, Bob Thompson, had already written a book uh, based on, um, that, that looked into the historic, take me out to the ball game, the history of music and baseball, especially that song. And, you know, I knew Bob was a fantastic writer. So I said, Bob, I'm going to, Bernie's going to agree to do this book. It's sort of my conception. Um, I'm going to structure it uh, sort of philosophically. And then will you sort of be my co-writer? You know, can I throw, can I do a lot of free write, throw it your way? So he was sort of like, Bob was like the in-house editor along the way. I mean, no doubt Bob wrote a bunch of the text too. You know, but um, a lot of times I would just feed him my ideas, and then he would elaborate on them. Uh, we we had I want to say, Doc, we had maybe between sixteen and twenty four hours of interview um, recorded. 
I had a little H2 Zoom handheld recorder, and for about, I'm going to say, a good half a year, six months to eight months, um, approximately maybe once every two weeks, I would get together with Bernie in my office, and we'd sit for two or three hours with the um, handheld recorder, and Bob and I would have, just like we're doing right now, Bob and I would have, you know, a dozen or so questions to ask him. He would answer the questions, and then we would start a conversation about it, and that was all recorded. And then the publisher, Hal Leonard, put us in touch with a uh, transcription company. So at the end of every um, interview, we would send that audio to a, um, a company that transcribes. And then a day or two later, we would get back a 20, 30, 40-page document that, trans that uh, you know, a written transcription of what we talked about. And then we would go into that transcription, start scratching things out or circling things, and that was like the catalyst for, you know, perhaps a chapter. You, uh, it's almost like a Socratic uh, dialogue. You, at the, in the beginning of the book, you, you say Greek philosopher Plato wrote about the idealized society as having a united influence of music and sport, yeah. where its people, quote, mingle music with sport in the fairest of proportions. Uh, you, you kind of did that with your co-authors. Exactly. You know, and I think the message there is for, let's say, you know, young parents or just parents in general. Um, you know, I know that uh, realistically sometimes a uh, an eighth grader or a sophomore in high school does, in fact, have to choose between playing in the band or, you know, playing on the basketball team or the football team because of the schedule. But, you know, I mean, it was said way back then, you know, Plato. And then, you know, Bernie Williams and, and I would certainly agree and support that sentiment that, you know, there are so many similarities between uh, the training of the mind and the body, for that matter, physically, between a musician and an athlete, that doing one benefits the other and vice versa. And, you know, Bernie is a, a living example of that. He grew up in Puerto Rico, and he went to a fine arts high school where he studied music strictly. There was no sports teams or anything. His mother, who was also a principal of a high school, allowed him to play track and baseball only after the fact, after all the academics were done and on the weekends. And he said that early days, you know, as being a Yankee, he knew that he played the game a little bit differently. Don't mean a thing if it doesn't have that swing, if you know, ain't got that swing. He saw the rhythms of the game a little bit differently some kind of rhythm of how everything moved and how he could be a part of that ebb and flow. And he said that the training of his mind musically had an impact on who he was as an athlete. And now that he's back to playing music full-time, he said he's saying it's the same thing. It's cyclical. Now all of the, the 15, 16 years that he was playing in the major leagues under high-pressure situations and, and, you know, being resilient and just, staying positive has now affected him on the musical stage. So, you know, it's, it's, it's alive, it's living and alive, you know, that, that, that duality. Um, you know, almost maybe it's one coin, just two different sides of the same coin, sports and music. Yeah, I think your book, uh, it ought to be required reading for uh, elementary school kids. Uh, yeah. Would, yeah. Uh, do, do you get a response uh, from, from children? Uh, especially yeah. because of the notoriety of, of, of Bernie and just what you just said um, about how similar sport and music really, really are. Yeah, you know, um, we 
we, we do two things. I mean, uh, it's interesting because I'm working on tweaking the presentation right now. For about two years, I've been going into uh, elementary schools, high schools, and also colleges. I have about a, a, a 90 minute, or it can go for anywhere between an hour to 90 minute presentation. It's a multimedia presentation. Um, that deals with all these concepts in a book. Uh, you know, I use the um, Apple Keynote um, software, and, and um, ideally, you know, obviously there's a price tag behind getting Bernie to a to a, a you know a location. All three of us. That's happened a few times. But um, what Bernie uh, agreed to do was he came into my office, and I videotaped him answering a bunch of questions, probably six to ten questions. And then I, I, I um, acquired footage of a lot of his famous, like, extra inning home runs. So in this presentation, I'll say, Bernie, what was going on in your mind at the bottom of the 11th inning, you know, against Baltimore in 1996? And then on the video, he'll come and, like, look directly at the audience and talk about what he remembers he was thinking and what was going through his mind. And then I'll go right to the footage of him getting that home run. So this it's a fascinating um, you know presentation. So I call it uh, it's rhythms of the game, how to perform at your best, and it's with virtual Bernie, you know. But there are times when all three of us have been together. We actually went up to the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, um, not not this last August, but a year ago August, and and, uh, and did a presentation. We also did a presentation at Montclair State University in New Jersey at the Yogi Berra. Um, museum, and we had met Yogi. That was a lot of fun. He sat in the front row, and um, so what yeah. What do you think of your of your presentation? Uh, oh, you know, yeah, you know, this is such a great story. You know, Bernie, we, we kept talking about musicians and athletes. You know, under high pressure situations, if you're up there playing, trying to play a saxophone solo, and you're starting to think about whether or not your fingers are relaxed. Or if you're thinking about, you know, you know, are you going to play a Lydian mode or a Mixolydian mode coming up, you know, or whatever it is. If you start thinking too much while you're trying to do something, that's that sort of struggle between left and right brain. And we deal with that a lot in the book. Um, but we went on and on and on about this at the uh, Yogi Berra Museum with Yogi in the front row. And then it was fantastic and, and such like uh, classic Yogi mannerism he just stands up he basically interrupts us and he said something to the fact of uh, to the effect of Bernie if I told you once I told you a million times you can't swing and think at the same time you know yeah you know it was classic it was like you know we, we went on and on probably 10 or something and Yogi just stands up and says yep I agree but you could say it much more succinctly. You can't think and swing at the same time. You just got to do it. And everybody yeah, knew he exactly. Su- yeah. He summarized one of your chapters perfectly. Yeah. yeah. That's um, really great. You know, and, and what's great also, Doc, is that, you know, when I've done this in the um, in the classrooms at, at universities and high schools, it's, it's all about trusting your preparation and um, not being afraid to, to fail or make a mistake, but understanding that, you know, you move, you move through it, you move forward. But the fact is, is that it, it doesn't really just apply to um, the performing arts, you know, whether it's being a dancer or a musician, or it's not just about being an athlete, whether you're a football player, tennis player, or a baseball player. But it also, I mean, you know, it, it certainly applies to performance in the classroom, you know, you spend a couple of weeks studying for a biology exam, 
what do you do the night before? You don't cram. You know, just like it's just like you know the night before a huge game. You're not going to spend six hours in the batting cage. That's not the time to do it. You know, so I think a lot of the the methods and skills and techniques we talk about in terms of how to prepare um, apply also to like academics. You know, the classroom. They sure do, Dave. Um, Another question that you don't deal with, because you don't talk a lot about yourself in the book, but um, I I remember I I got my doctorate at the University of Northern Colorado back in the... uh, Oh, yeah. And they had a terrific, uh, Gene Aitken, I think was the name, a terrific uh, jazz program there. And they had Louis Belson do a talk, and and he, he mentioned that the drummer is the athlete of the band. I remember him saying that uh, specifically. I wonder if you just talk about your own and how you got interested in percussion and and uh and obviously it's it's all about rhythm and how you've got Yeah, well, you're right. Doing you know, my, my, yeah, doc, I mean my my mother has shown me uh the birth announcement when I was born and it had a little drummer boy on it. So maybe it was just fate, you know. Um I it's just his. It's always been in my body, you know. I, I started pract- I started studying private drum lessons, I think, when I was in fourth grade, and um, and just the whole rhythmical aspect of it, learning how rhythm has a life of its own, and how you know rhythm comes from many different places from around the world, and how a lot of rhythms are shared, a lot of them are different. Um, being a drummer, whether it's in a rock band, a reggae band, or or big band, I mean. I think yeah, you almost are like the uh, the athlete in the uh, band. More specifically, if you want to relate it to baseball, you're like the catcher. You know, you're behind the drum set in a big band. You're sort of like behind home plate. You're kind of calling the shots. Everyone else kind of relies on on your responsibility to call the right pitches, you know, or to move people around. And I think in a way, a drummer with your groove and your sense of time and tempo affects everyone around you. So I, I, I talked to a couple, you know, drummers. Um, Dave Weckel, you know, very well-known um, modern drummer. Kenny Aronoff up out in L.A. Uh, I talked in a couple of my colleagues here, Richie Morales, who played with Spyro Gyre back in the 70s and 80s. They kind of all agreed that, um, you know, the drummer... And, and, you know, and, and again, the athlete in a band, I mean, you know, we have all four rooms going. It's almost like, you know, I'll reach out and expand on it. We're like the catcher in the band, but we're also the pitcher in itself, too, because we're dealing with, like, a lot of mechanics. Think about how the pitcher's lower torso and upper torso have to be in sync, you know, during the wind-up. And I think, like, when a drummer sits down behind a drum set, you got both your feet on pedals and you got both your hands. You really have to be in tune with your instrument just like the pitcher has to feel very comfortable on the mound. So I think in that sense, you know, um, I've always enjoyed, you know, the physicality of playing the drums. Um, it's always been with me, you know. And when I'm not teaching, I'm with a group called, um, and I think I, I mentioned it in the, in the book um, briefly, but, but Rhythm and Brass. Um, we're a Yamaha group. It's a brass quintet, and I'm the drummer, and I'm the primary composer and arranger. But... Um, you know, I, this group has been together almost 20 years, and we've played all 49, you know, states in the continental USA. We've been to Japan, Thailand, 
Saudi Arabia, Australia. We have, I think, seven recordings. Back in 1999, we did a uh, Duke Ellington tribute that got written up in the New York Times as Album of the Week. But, you know, you mentioned Louis Belson. I have one other thing to say about Louis Belson. Um, I think I, I learned this from reading an article that he wrote, um, traveling the country with the rhythm of brass, the grueling schedule, um, waking up in the morning. I used to wake up an hour before we had to leave with a practice pad in the hotel room. And then I started exper- experimenting with something because, I, I, like I said, I, I remember Louis Belson mentioning this. I used to take a pair of drumsticks, and if the hotel had an indoor pool, I would take the drumsticks with me in the pool, stand in the water at, like, shoulder shoulder depth, and I would start to either either match grip or traditional grip, because I play both. I would just start um, sort of playing um, in the water, like not on the surface, but underwater, just like these big strokes. And it was amazing because a lot of the times, you know, you get tight. All musicians can get tight and the muscles aren't working in conjunction with each other. But with the natural resistance of the water and keeping my muscles loose, just um, performing these like elongated figure eight strokes for 10 minutes, I would start to feel the burn in all my muscles like I was working out. But there was like, um, you know, the resistance was, was so natural um, that after several weeks of doing this, I got behind the drum set. If there was a tempo that was really fast or I was trying to do something complicated where I would typically get tense and tight physically, I would just have notes to myself, think water, think being in the pool. And all of a sudden, the motion of my sticks going from small tom to the ride cymbal to the floor tom became much more fluid. And, um, you know, and I think athletes, you know, whether it's swinging a bat or throwing a ball, you really have to slow things down to see how all the muscles are working in conjunction. And I think that's what I was doing as a drummer in the pool. Well, that is a that's a <laughs> that wasn't in the book. Um, no, that, that, that's just an that's an amazing story. Now that leads me to another one of the greatest anecdotes in the book is related to the story you just told me. Which is the story of your Tai Chi teacher mm-hmm. and how you you had you had you know you're doing these repetitive things and you injure your shoulder. I, I think the audience would love hearing that story and and how that relates to the story you just told and also to uh, to sport. Yeah, it, uh, Doc, that that's the, the that that's the exact um, link to the book. Um, I, I do mention that story about practicing for days, weeks, months at a time in my practice room. This is when I was living out in the West Coast in the La Crescenta, California. And um, and I started getting numbness in my lower back, uh, a ting- tingling feeling up my spine. I knew something was going on. So I decided to, uh, you know, to go with some advice from some friends. It's like, go try out some Tai Chi. You know, it really slows down muscle movement and it really relaxes you. It's like, that looks great. Well, my type, to make a long story short, my Thai tea teacher, um, I, I informed her of everything that I was going through and what I did for a living. And, and she was really intrigued. And she actually um, offered to come and watch me practice for half an hour. And she she noticed. She got behind me and she saw that my the angle of my right shoulder compared to my left was a little bit um, askewed. You know, it wasn't um, parallel to the ground. And um, while I was playing just a ride cymbal jazz pattern, 
I felt like she put a chisel down my right shoulder, but she said she just literally put the natural weight of her index finger on on my shoulder, and she hit the spot, and I thought I was going to, you know, skyrocket to the moon, the pain. And she goes, there it is, you know, and she showed me. She she said, that ride symbol, you're not, you know, the ride, the ride symbol is playing you. You're not playing the ride symbol. You know, she told me to sit down again on my drum, on my drum throne, close my eyes, put out my sticks, and like, let, let gravity take over. And just show me where you want to play that ride symbol. And it wasn't where the ride symbol was. It was only about a half inch to a quarter of an inch too high. And she goes, that's it. It doesn't seem like much if you play drums once a month, but you're investing hours each day. You know, that would be like, uh, you know, two different shoe sizes or a heel on the left foot. You know, you're walking several miles a day. It's going gonna, it's gonna, to, you know, take its toll. And Bernie said the same thing. Like when, when, when a batter, you know, starts to get into a slump, Sometimes it's, you know, a lot of times it's just mental, but if it's physical, it's, it's, it's such a minute, small adjustment that a lot of times the player, whether it's the drummer or the batter, it's such a small, um, you know, increment that needs to be changed that it goes undetected by the player or by the athlete. So you need, that's why you need a coach to look at you and go, let's, let's try moving this just ever so slightly. And a lot of times, you know, they'll nail it. And that's all it took for me. I mean, we're talking about a quarter of an inch. And after making that adjustment, you know, and becoming aware of that, my problem went away within weeks. Now, that's an incredible, just yeah. an incredible story. Yeah, she was my coach. Just like, you know, the batters have the batting coaches, you know. If it means just like changing your mechanics, you know, whether it's your your hip or your elbow, just moving it, you know, an inch, sometimes an inch is all it takes or less. All right. So we're going to change gears here again, um, because another great example you gave um, was about how John Coltrane practiced his chord changes. And I thought that was so interesting how he prepared for his these, these incredible solos that he played, but that people didn't know how he prepared, and then maybe relate that to sports. That was a great... Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, we all know what a virtuoso and how innovative John Coltrane is. But I, I think a lot of times the way he practiced, away from, you know, the live musicians, away from the... He would just simply play, you know... Um, almost like a, a beginner or amateur saxophonist, a simple triad of major and minor, you know, modes, N nothing too extravagant, you know, but then once he put it into a musical context, then it, it took on a whole different meaning because of the environment. I, I, I think what, what I, the point I want to make right now is that even someone who was as advanced as John Coltrane, I think every day he got up, and probably start start thinking about the fundamentals of music, sound, right? You know, getting his breath going, and just production of sound and technique. You know, making sure that there's always solid technique physically and also intellectually. Uh, you know, no matter how advanced you become, I think all great musicians and athletes will say that you're never beyond fundamentals. You can only go forward as much as you you know, always acknowledge the foundation. 
um, for musicians. It's it's sound, you know, and basic technique. Um, obviously, um, seasoned professional athletes and musicians can sometimes oh, they only have to remind themselves of the fundamentals. They don't have to spend hours each day doing them. But but whether it's whether it's a Bernie Williams or a John Coltrane, you know, that's why. Every every day, Bernie would you know just start literally swinging the bat and then putting the baseball on a tee so that the baseball's stationary. I think that parallels John Coltrane picking up and just playing basic triads, you know, and then and then moving forward quite quickly. But um, I, I think the bottom line is whether it's a, a Coltrane or a Bernie Williams or whomever, um, the real masters of an art form um, realize that you're never you you never go beyond the fundamentals of that endeavor. What surprised you, Dave, in in collaborating on this book? Um, it, it seems like you might have been predisposed to think this way anyway, um, because you said you just you love percussion and you love drums your whole life, and you're obviously you're kind of a Renaissance guy in terms of your musical tastes, and and and, and you you love risk and, and innovation. Musically, what what surprised you in this collaboration with uh, with Bob? With, with um, you know, this is we talked about the parallels. You know, the preparation and the discipline, and uh, learning how to deal with pressure situations, whether it's on a concert stage or a baseball diamond. But I remember talking saying, "Yep, do you agree that you know musicians were artists and we think more creatively, perhaps?" You know, we all we, athletes and musicians have share the same discipline and preparation, um, the regimented, you know, um, rehearsing and all that. But but, but musicians are, are artists and athletes are athletes. He goes, absolutely not. He's saying if you look at if you just interview and start to see how these guys talk, geez, but geez, they, how they talk about the game that they play. If you look at a Wayne Gretzky on the ice or a Michael Jordan on the court, Bernie said that these guys are artists. They're improvising. You know, the the court or the ice rink are like their canvas. And they're very regimented. You know, they're very disciplined. But at the same time, that's matched with, like, spontaneity. So one thing I was surprised about, Doc, was, like, hearing Bernie Williams saying, look, I mean, these athletes are artists also, just like a great drummer is an athlete. So I like using that phrase. In the book, we deal with the, you know, the athleticism of art, and then there's the art of athleticism. So he convinced me that, you know, musicians didn't have the one-up on athletes because we do something creatively and we improvise and we, we... are spontaneous. It's like the best of the best. Not not all athletes are like that, but when you look at the superstars, like again, whether it's a Michael Jordan or a Wayne Gretzky or a Bernie Williams or Pedro Martinez, these are guys who treat the game, an athletic game, as if it's a um, a tune on a stage, you know, and they're they're navigating through the head and they're improvising, and because just like a piece of jazz music. And a baseball game, you know, there's unpredictability. There's unpredictability. You don't know exactly how how it's going to turn out. And so that's that was my biggest surprise was to be convinced that um, the top notch athletes 
can be just as creative as artists. Yeah, that's great. Here's here's a question I've been wanting to ask you. That you had one line, I think, in the book about that. Forgive me if if there was more, but you you kind of dropped in the book that, or maybe it was in the the afterward or something that that you were an umpire. Yeah, uh, yeah. And 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 you don't mention that, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. That here's this kind of wild card in the <laughs> game that changes the rhythms of the game that completely yeah. can throw off a game. I just thought there might be another essay in there. Yeah, there, there is. You know, uh, we talk about moving forward changes, and look what Bernie's gone through. He went from being a, a you know a young musician in Puerto Rico to a um, modern-day superstar athlete, and now he's back to the music. So we talk a lot about um, developing skill sets and then being able to transfer them. Sometimes you have to tweak them, manipulate them, but just your abilities as a human being you know, your skill set. You can transfer them from one endeavor to the other. So for me, you know, I, I have to say it was like uh, I've been umping now for five years, I believe. One summer, five years ago, it's like, ooh, that was a long semester. I don't want to teach summer school this time around, you know, for, for the extra, you know, bread in the pocket. It's like I want to do something else. I love baseball. Why not, why not get certified to umpire? So, you know, that's what I did. So, you know, I umpire... Um, you know, grade school kids, junior high, some high school. You know, I have hopes maybe to to get um, certified enough to 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 do you know NCAA college level baseball. But but this summer, I actually spent a week up in Cooperstown at the Cooperstown Dreams Park. Uh, you know, teams from all around the country come there. Um, they're I think ten to twelve year olds. And then actually, I I, I umpired a, an adult league uh, at Double Day Field uh, just about a month ago. And, you know, it, it's, it's wonderful because just like being on stage, improvising, how you have to kind of like clear your mind, you only want to just be thinking about the music. You have to concentrate, but it's a deep sort of relaxed concentration. And I think the experience that I've had playing drums or whatever, you know, whatever it is, playing piano, mallets, just the concentration, how it just has to be like hyper-focused but relaxed. Because once you start thinking about other things, at any one given time, you run the danger of getting off track. And I, I applied that sense of focus and concentration to umpiring. Because when you're behind the plate, you, it's almost like a, a meditative, almost like a Zen experience. You have to lose track of everything else, and you take it one pitch at a time. And it's almost like, it, it is, it's like a moving meditation. You know, each pitch is sort of like a mantra. What you can't be thinking about anything else. You can't be thinking about an argument you had with a friend or what you want to eat after the game. Because think about it, you know, if a first baseman cannot watch a pitch, and if the ball's not hit to him, that's fine. But an umpire behind the plate, if you don't see the pitch, if you have your eyes closed, you're thinking something else. That's a direct re- reflection on on you, you know the fact that you you're, you're obliged to call every single pitch for the whole game. So my ability to focus playing a 15-minute jazz piece has helped me behind the plate in terms of just focusing. And you know, if you think you made a mistake, that's all right. Just do the best you can at the next pitch, you know. And um, so there's that parallel, and I, and I love umpiring because it is. It's, it, it just keeps you, it keeps you focused on one thing, and I think musicians have to do that, you know. So I, I, find, I find a link there. 
And Bernie Ives had wonderful, you know, talks about some of his, you know, favorite umpires and ones that kind of got to him. <laughs> very interesting. I, yeah. um, when I when I was growing up, there was a very flamboyant umpire named Emmett Ashford. Might have oh, I, think, I do remember but, that name, yeah. But but I remember, you know, he he might have been the the uh, the Buddy Rich of of, uh, <laughs> of um, um, umpires because he 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 really did call attention to himself. Um, he he was yeah. something uh, when yeah. he called somebody out. Um, he, he made a show of it. Uh, he yeah. got some flack for it, but um, <laughs> it, was, it was it was it was it was really interesting. Dave, what are your colleagues? Uh, what's been the response of your colleagues in the music department? Um, not necessarily there, but you know, you take this on the road and you talk about new projects that you're doing. Uh, yeah. Do your do your music colleagues are they fascinated by oh, this? And yeah, and, and, you know, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to you know. I, I don't think it would be the truth for me to say that, like, every single colleague, musical colleague I have, you know, uh, agrees 100% with this direct parallel, this similarity. Um, you know, that's not the point. But what I'm amazed at is the amount of people that go, yeah, you know, when I'm playing tennis on the weekends for the golf, just it's a combination of the physical aspect of it and the mental aspect. And actually, to a certain degree, the spiritual aspect. You've got to enjoy it. Everybody, you know, most people say it's like, yeah, that when, when things are going really well on the golf course or on the tennis court, it's sort of the same feeling as when I'm playing the recital, you know. And um, and I think just the more dialogue we can create between performers, because that's what we're talking about, whether it's on the golf course or, you know, or the um, concert stage or even the uh, the classroom, you know, lecture podium. It's performing, and it's preparing the mindset, the mindset you have to be in. And I think the more, um, you know, we can start these conversations with one another, you know, we'll touch upon other very subtle, unique, you know, similarities. So, so many of my colleagues here, because I actually use a lot of my colleagues here at Purchase, um, you know, uh, John Sattis, you know, well-known trumpeter, you know, he talks about when in his early days um, traveling, Dizzy Gillespie was his mentor. You know, and he, we talk about, you know, how important it is as an athlete or as a musician to have people around you, you know, who are mentors, who are teachers. So he had a wonderful little, you know, um, essay in the book that talks about how musicians and athletes have to have the positive role models. And for, you know, for Bernie Williams, I, I know for a fact for Bernie Williams when he was young, it was Don Mattingly, you know, who, who um, gave Bernie a lot of direction. And a lot of it was just trusting your ability, trusting yourself, you know, believing in yourself, um, and knowing that it's a long run, you know, for both an athlete and a musician. You're going to have good concerts, bad concerts, good games, bad games. Um, don't worry too much about the statistics. It's about the process, you know. Um, so I think a lot of my colleagues here at Purchase Center on the country um, have shared this this journey, you know. Very interesting. One of the common denominators, uh, you, you said rhythm and, and performance, of course, between athletes and, and musicians. One of the interesting things about Bernie Williams, I know he and Mattingly uh, were both considered for the Hall of Fame, and um, Bernie's numbers um, don't really reflect how great he was because he was at his best, his numbers are the best, in the playoffs, in the yeah. postseason. 
he was yeah. just really a big time performer when it really yeah. counted. That's where his numbers were the best. And I, I wonder just uh, if that's true in terms of music too. There are, there are studio players and, and perfectionists, but there are some players that seem to, to come alive when they're on stage and the bigger the stage, the better they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think Paul Simon was one of those too, you know, who provided the foreword to the book, you know, Bernie talked to Paul once. He said, like, how do you play in front of a half a million people in Central Park? And, and Paul says the same way that you're in center field, game seven of the World Series. You know, what are you thinking about? You know, so um, I, think, I, I think you can look at the psychology and the physiology of the mind and the brain, you know, and some people can do it more naturally than others. But when you, you know, we talk about that in the book a little bit about different, like, levels at which the brain can function, you know, the theta, the delta, the alpha, the beta states. It's like basically gears of a car, first gear, second, third, fourth, you know. And without getting too too complicated here because, you know, I'm, I'm outside of my realm. I don't want in my talks. I don't go into it too deep, but I'll go into it to the extent that I, I know this is true because I have some psychology teachers here at Purchase who've um, – who I've had conversations with, but you know the brain has to be working at a at a at a frequency. It's like the alpha state where it's relaxed. You know, once you reach beta, you start to calculate. Your brain is like questioning everything. It gets back to what Yogi Berra said: you can't think and do at the same time. Thinking is is beta, and that's what you do in the practice room when you're learning a new piece of music, or when you're in the batting cages. You're scrutinizing everything. But when it's time to perform, you have to relax the brain a little bit and trust your ability. And that's alpha state. And I think those players who Bernie Williams numbers postseason, the most doubles I still think of any Yankee, he was naturally able to put himself into that state of mind where he allowed his ability to shine. Tell me a little bit about um, your own performances, Dave, and, and how you prepare mentally for those. When you you, see you founded your this group back in '93, yeah, '93, yeah, we played thousands of concerts. Like I said, and you know there were times where I would have the xylophone or or you know a practice pad back in the dressing room, and I would be like going over licks and and keeping my hands moving right up to the literally the moment that I walked on stage. And, you know, I, I, I finally realized after years that, like, you know, that's not the time to do that, you know. I think before the performance, you know, my Tai Chi teacher actually, um, what is it called? Uh, I'm forgetting the actual move, but it's like the very first move of a lot of those um, forms in Tai Chi. Uh, I would just, I would relax my shoulders. You know, I always thought of gravity. Just, like, stand there for 10 minutes before you go on stage and breathe. First of all, it all comes from the breath. Deep breathing. And then I would just like, you know, move my, my shoulders and my arms in a circular, almost like I, like I was doing in the, in the pool. But I think for me, once a musician invests enough time in their life, then you have to trust your ability. And before an actual performance, you have to, you have to rest your body physically and your mind mentally and trust that you already know, you've already put in enough time. So for me... You know, for the past several years, for the past decade, you know, if I don't think I know a lick on the xylophone, 
or a sticking pattern in a, in a snare drum thing I have to do, five minutes before the performance is not the time to try to cram that information in your brain because um, the brain doesn't work like that. It needs time for that for that information to be imprinted. You can't completely recall something in a high-pressure situation that you just put in your brain. So that's the bottom line. Is I've learned that if, if you prepare to the best of your ability, then moments before performance is a time to do one thing, relax. You have to relax. Dave, I've been thinking about this, and I wanted to pop this question to you. Mm -hmm. I grew up, and I idolized two athletes, and I'm going to give you each name, and without thinking about it, I want you to parallel them with a great mm -hmm. jazz position. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, okay. So these are my two favorite athletes, and I just want the immediate response. You ready? Yeah. W Willie Mays. Max Roach. Wow. Okay, and here's the second one. <laughs> Muhammad Ali. Elvin Jones. <laughs> okay. All right. Tell us why. Um, Tell us why. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, just obviously Muhammad Ali's strength and just resilient. Um, you know, and I obviously I went to two drummers. I could have gone, you know, I mean, I, I got a strong jazz background, but I, I you know, it might have been too much. Um Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, just the, the the grunt, like like the strength, the brute strength of Muhammad Ali, and you know the way he would punch his arms. Uh, you know, I just thought of Elvin Jones behind the drum set. You know, this is a boxing match, and the drums are his opponent, and just you know the physicality and the uh, resilience, like just you know you know Elvin Jones would just push through and bring everyone with him, and like you know. Well, just the way that Elton Jones would, would uh, play rhythms, his sense of time, were almost like the same kind of way that Muhammad Ali would move through space with his arms. So that's that. And I don't know, Willie Mays, you know, I know just something about his likability and his, his improvisatory sort of manner and, and how he was... Um, good across the board. Everyone said that he was a great teammate. Um, just his abilities were widespread. Um, a classy guy. I just, I don't know. I, I just pictured Max Roach, you know, yeah, where... I, I put, go ahead. Yeah. 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 For some reason, I don't know, because it's like a combination of all those um, qualities, characteristics, you know, good across the board, very classy, um, creative, you know, a good teammate, a good bandmate. So there you go. Willie made some match roach. I don't know why. Okay. Well, that's great. I, you just responded instinctively, and then I asked you to use your left brain to yeah. justify what you what you came back with. But uh, right. I just thought it might it, it might be a fun exercise. Hey, to, Doc. To think you know, about. I have, yeah. yeah, I, I want to say I, it's after ten o'clock right now. I have to teach at ten thirty, um, and I have to prepare for this class. Um, Tell us real quickly what you're doing now. What are you, what are your new projects? Well, uh, actually, I, I am. I'm. I'm. Um, I'm working with Hal Leonard right now. I've always wanted to write a book, um, rhythmical studies, not for percussionists and drummers necessarily, but just for um, musicians in general. Just different ways to think about about rhythm and subdividing and and you know, in, in essence, I think whether you play the clarinet, flute, 
piano or upright bass. We all deal with rhythm. In a way, we all have to be our own drummers. So, and I, I've created this, this um, using geometrical shapes, triangles, lines, and squares. I've taken some very complicated syncopated 16th note rhythms, and I've had kindergartners perform those rhythms within five minutes' time because they're actually counting from one to three or back, one to four or back using geometric shapes instead wow. of, you know, instead of note heads, stems, flags, yeah. you know. It, so, I mean, part of this book is, um, yet again, another rhythm sort of endeavor, but it's rhythmical studies, uh, creative rhythmical studies for musicians of all sorts. And I'm, I I'm need really... Your book. And what yeah. a great, what a great, I need your book. I, I can't wait. Get the class so you can write that book, Dave. Yeah. Um, well, Doc, it was, it was a pleasure, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And like I said before, you know, uh, I'm going to be actually coming out west in the spring uh, to Boise, Idaho for a while. Um, you know, I, I love uh, doing these presentations. Um, so who knows, maybe sometime in the future we can, we can come up with a, a scenario, a situation where I might be able to come out to your university and, and, uh, share these thoughts, you know, in the live presentation. Oh, Dave, I would adore it. You would love it where we are. We're out in the Redwood country, Humboldt State. We're nestled yeah. behind the, the Redwood curtain there. And, oh, uh, that sounds great. Hopefully you, I get a chance to come it. out there and meet you and, and uh, you know, spread the word, you know, the link between musical and athletic performance. Oh, that's great. Well, it's uh, Dave Gluck along with uh, Bob Thompson and Bernie Williams. The book was Rhythms of the Game. Dave, what a delightful conversation. Uh, we could go on and on and on, and I, I, I can't believe you have the time to, to do the things you do. So thanks well, very much. for Thanks, Doc, and maybe we'll have, we'll have part two sometime in the future. Sounds great. Well, all the okay. best to you, Dave. Thanks, Doc. All okay. Right. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Books and Jazz with Doc Stull, a look at new, innovative, and creative books about the music, the history, and personalities in jazz, and the relationship of jazz to culture. Today's interview was with percussionist composer, professor of studio composition, Dave Gluck. Dave, along with New York Yankee all-star baseball player and jazz guitarist Bernie Williams, and music colleague, writer, producer, and author Bob Thompson, have written Rhythms of the Game, The Link, between musical and athletic performance, published by Hal Leonard Corporation, 2011.